Hello, Liturgy Guy listeners. This is your host, Jesse Wyland. We have another great episode for you. But first, I obviously want to remind you about our Young Adult Liturgy Conference coming up in June. That's June 15th, 16th, and 17th. It's an amazing study weekend here on our campus, and registration will end after the first week of June. So register now so that you can make sure that you have a spot to come and hang out with us for the weekend. You can find out more information at btransfigured.com. Group rates are still available. Give Karen a call at 847 847- 837-4542. Also, there's another conference I want to let you guys know about with an affiliate of ours. This is the National Gathering on Christian Initiation. So if you work in a parish specifically with RCIA, this is a national conference that you're going to want to come to. It's uh, on July 5th and 6th here in Chicago. And uh, a partner of this conference is Liturgy Training Publications which is uh, the publisher that we use to publish books for the Liturgical Institute. Uh, We publish books under the imprint of Brand Books. So if you go to our website, liturgicalinstitute.org, you can see some of the books um, on our website that our faculty have written and friends of the Liturgical Institute. So if you're looking for more reading material, you can uh, look for liturgy training publications. But this conference, July 5th and 6th, it's going to be really amazing, especially if uh, if you do the RCIA for your parish. And you can find out more information about this conference at ngci.org. That's ngci.org. And that conference is July 5th and 6th here in Chicago. This week, we are talking about the right of exorcism. That is right. This is a two-part episode, so we're going to cover a little bit in the first part, and then next week we're going to release part two. This is a fantastic conversation, and one I didn't think we would ever get to. I just, I don't know why, but I never thought we'd talk about the right of exorcism. Uh, but here you go. Episode 38 of Season 2 of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. Jesse. Chris. Do you know the prayer to St. Michael? I do. Prove it. Next. <laughs> Be our protection against the wickedness and the snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray and do thou. Prince of the heavenly host, by the divine power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. Some people say cast, and some people say they thrust. Yeah. Thrust. Uh, but Just yes, a I, translation yeah. issue, I think. Yeah. Why, is it, why, why are we starting this podcast with that? Um, well, I... I'm not entirely sure, but I believe... Then let me tell you. Okay. Yeah. Now, we're we're <laughs> yeah. going to discuss the church's most recent, well, at least uh, in English, uh, our most recent ritual book to have been promulgated, which is the Rite of Exorcism. Oh. And so... Which is actually know, a new rite as well, not just a new translation, correct? It's true. It's the, um, it's the, the reformed rite since the Second Vatican Council that had been around a long time, and even in its Latin form had received a number of different emendations and, tra- and uh, adaptations. That but finally changes. now, changes. Finally now, it's available in, uh, in English. So, but not for any old guy on the street, right? Yeah, it's, uh, you can't get this uh, unless you're a bishop. So uh, it's only available through the USCCB, and they only sell it to bishops. And I think trying to, there's a, you can find numbers of stories about exorcism, you can find movies about exorcism. Mm, there's a lot, yeah. And um, find a lot of 
unclear thinking about sensationalist sensational uh, yeah whether it's theology or practice and so the church wants to um she wants to, to have a firm hand in, in what she teaches about uh exorcism and so can i do a little context here sure strangely enough i know a lot of people who are kind of in this world of deliverance and some exorcists i have some friends and, um, you know, we tend to think like, oh, exorcism is always the only resort to any battle with the devil. But as we just did the St. Michael prayer, that's in a sense um, deliverance prayer, right? We ask St. Michael to defend us from the effects of the devil. It doesn't mean we need the right of exorcism. So an exorcist friend of mine said that we all need spiritual hygiene. So basically the world is full of demons the way the world is full of flu viruses. And we don't go around being afraid of flu viruses all the time, but you wash your hands after you touch a doorknob or something. And so basically you go to the Eucharist, you go to confession, you use your holy water, you say your prayers. That's kind of basic spiritual hygiene. Every now and then, if you open yourself up through like a Ouija board or a cult practice or something, you might actually get a more severe kind of infection that requires a more severe kind of attention. So he said that, you know, most people go through the world mostly healthy most of the time, and you get little sicknesses and you go to confession and then that's fine. Sometimes, though, you have the spiritual equivalent of cancer and you wouldn't rush straight to chemotherapy if you had the flu, just as you wouldn't rush to the right of exorcism just from your normal interaction in the spiritual world. And so the the medicine of of, uh, chemotherapy is dangerous if you don't know what you're doing and if you're not Mm -hmm. an oncologist. And so the right of exorcism is for the highest level of infestation or infection and therefore has to be the most carefully managed. How's that, Chris? That is really well said, as far as I know. (laughs) We... I suppose occasionally we, we, maybe it's more often than not, we talk about things we're not entirely firsthand, uh, have firsthand knowledge Especially of. Especially right? me. <laughs> who of us, who, which of the three of us has ever said mass? Ne- none of us. Never. Okay. All of so, us. So I, as members of the mystical body. <laughs> uh, but not, not, uh, not as, uh, as a cleric, head, yeah. right? And right. so, and you know, we're, we're as humans, which... Uh, course we are we're limited in some ways in, in our perspective uh, and this is certainly one of them for me I've never been exercised I've never been at a, in an exorcism everything I know about the right of exorcism comes through reading and those who who are experts I actually sat in prayer support on a very major mm. deliverance once it didn't actually use the right of exorcism but it okay. was very much like what you see in the movies okay the demon speaking through this person mocking Christ but basically what I came away with it was a little surprising at first but at the end realize that these demons are basically like immature 16-year-olds. They just mm-hmm. kind of pout and mock, and they know they've lost, and Christ wins the battle. And it's, mm-hmm. it's nothing to be afraid of. I mean, people, I think, get unnecessarily afraid of this. But to, be, to walk around being afraid of cancer all the time makes no sense, or the yeah. flu makes no yeah. sense. You're cautious, and you're careful, and you do what you need to do, but the devil has lost the let me tie Let me tie those things together. Where I was going with this is that I have I have heard from uh, and who who, I, who we're relying on here in large part at the liturgical institute, right? So we have a class on sacramentals and exorcism is a sacramental, and so we have an expert that teaches this class named uh, uh, Father Father Grob from the uh, Archdiocese who studied this uh, as a part of his uh, doctoral uh, work, uh, and he says, Dennis, this, the very same thing that you did that 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 the um for, for most of us the, the the way we keep evil at bay is by living a sacramental and grace-filled life receiving the sacraments saying daily prayers exercising the virtues uh living a life according to christian morality and this is what this is what um keeps us healthy uh, spiritually speaking so but let's uh let's back up and kind of go from the beginning if we i, I just yeah. had a clarifying question yep um so 
so this was uh, a, a, this is a new right. So before this was uh, created, were we using the right from pre-Vatican II still in exorcisms? Some were, some okay. were. So the uh, the 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 first typical Latin edition after the Council came out in 1998. And I want Dennis to comment on this in just a little bit. And then it was amended in 2004, and then in 2005, and then in 2014. Mm -hmm. And it's this Latin edition from 2014 that was translated and, oops, and that uh, is now available in English to bishops and uh, those who assist them. And my understanding is that exorcists were using it and gave some suggestions, and so they they sent suggestions back to the Holy See, and that's where they made all these little changes Mm -hmm. in those years. So now they think they got it right, and they want to. got the right right. They got the right right, and then they decided to translate it in English. Correct. Okay. Great. So uh, an exorcist today could use the rite in the extraordinary form from 1614. So that would have followed upon the Council of Trent. I think there was a little, a couple of adaptations to that since then. Or the rite after the Second Vatican Council in Latin, or the rite after the Second Vatican Council now translated into English or another vernacular language. So there's three potential rites as far as I can tell. You may not know the answer to this. But I'm going to ask anyway, um, what would be the point of having those prayers said in the vernacular? It has to do uh, with its nature as a sacramental. Okay, Okay. so which is interesting because we think of the rite of the church, it must be a sacrament, right? But this is a sacramental, which is distinct. How would you distinguish it? It is. uh, As you uh, remember, surely, Jesse, from previous podcasts, a sacrament is an efficacious sign of grace instituted by Christ and entrusted to his church by which divine life is dispensed to us through the work of the Holy Spirit. That is what a sacrament is. A sacramental. The catechism and the other documents will say bear a certain resemblance to the sacraments. In other words, in some ways they're like sacraments, but in other ways they're not. And one of the way, when, some of the ways that they're not like sacraments is a sacrament works uh, what we call ex opere operato, meaning that Jesus is the principal and objective operator in a sacrament. But in a sacramental, the church uses such terms as quasi ex opere operato, sort of like that, <laughs> oh, okay. or ex opere operato ecclesia, through the working of the church. In other words, it doesn't depend entirely on you, but uh, how Jesus is active through his church is a little bit different. Right? Um, the graces that they bestow, sacraments bestow sacramental grace, uh, sacramentals bestow actual graces that prepare you for the sacraments. Um, but it relies a lot on your receptivity. It relies a lot, I think a lot more. On, see, this is true of the sacraments too, is that you have to have the proper disposition for the grace that comes to you objectively to be fruitful. In a sacramental, this is especially the case. Okay, so the recipient uh, needs to engage in some way, his or her will, in some way in the sacramental rite. So why should it, why would there be a benefit to celebrating this in the because vernacular? If, the, if they know the language, they yes, can participate. Yes, because, okay. and in fact, this is um, uh, in, when the USCCB and the Bishop's Committee on Divine Worship uh, released this book, Father Andrew Menke, who is the executive secretary for the Bishop's Committee, he, he said this very thing, is that you know the person is meant to be able to engage and receive some solace and comfort and grace in this, and being able to hear the prayers it's not, this is something Father Grob would suggest too, is every circumstance is so different 
that uh, in some cases it might be helpful to use the vernacular. Right. And some people might say, I don't understand Latin, but I know it sounds holy and the, the devil hates Latin, so That's what this I was is going to be more effective, yeah. right? So they might feel like the right is more effective, even though it may not objectively be more effective, but it might help them be more confident in the victory of Christ or whatever. Or it might be the other way around. If I understand what I'm doing, I can answer more intentionally. And I, I was talking to an exorcist because we have this conference here every couple of years uh, from the Leo Thirteenth Society, and I asked him about Latin and English. He was convinced Latin is better. He said because it was one of the three languages over the cross of Christ. <laughs> I don't know mm. why, but he said in his experience, the Latin form seems to work better, but I don't know that that's yeah. a real settled case. Yeah, well, either way, I mean, the, the, the efficacy of the exorcism or of any of the church's sacramentals, especially, is because the church is um, standing behind them. So I don't, I don't know that there's some sort of, like in the actual scribbled word or spoken word necessarily that makes it efficacious. Rather, it's because they belong to the church and her head is Jesus Christ. And that is what makes them powerful. Yeah, it's the, it's the authority coming from behind it, not necessarily the, the accidentals, which is like the language or the... Yeah, yes, that, yeah. This is hard to sort out. Yeah. Because especially, I mean, this is something that the Liturgy Guys podcast and the Liturgical Institute is very big on, is the efficacy of sacramentality. There's so much writing on the words, the signs that are used, that um, so while it is the church behind it, that has to be expressed in in the most uh, powerful way possible. So say you had a holy picture on the wall of Mary or Jesus or something, and most of the day you'd walk by and not think of it, and then suddenly you see that, and it reminds you, oh Jesus, I love you. That's a little movement that's triggered by that, but then grace might be coming through because you've told Jesus you love him, but it's that image that formed that little disposition in you to tell Jesus that he loves you. But if there's any grace that comes, that's from Christ. Yeah. All right. What is an exorcism? Let me suggest a, <laughs> Good question. Let me suggest a little wordplay here. I'm so nervous of saying yeah, something that's yeah, wrong. <laughs> yeah. I've gotten over that a long time ago. Okay, good. <laughs> okay. This is a great word. Uh, it's etymology. It's ex-balain. Oh, ex-balain. To throw out. Right. So balain or uh, baleo, I don't know what it, it's a Greek word. The, I don't know what the form would be. It means to throw or to hurl. Okay, oh. and so we, we've heard this before, right? So uh, in English, the word ballistics means something that is thrown or tossed or hurled. What mm -hmm. is hyper, hyperbole? Something that is super thrown. <laughs> super thrown. This is the this is the most entertaining liturgical Podge. podcast ever. ever. That's not hyperbolic. Oh, That's true. Oh, okay. That's just bollock. <laughs> okay. So hyperbole is to throw up. <laughs> to throw oh. beyond, to balain over, to throw beyond. So to speak in hyperbole Overthrow. is is to is to overstate. That's a wild pitch, right? Yeah. And the catcher's running looking for it. Yeah. Uh, what is symbolane? To uh, throw. Throw together? Throw together into a hole, right? That's so a sacrament. This is right? what, yeah. Symbol. A sacrament is a supernatural symbol. Right. So in the, in the church's tradition, she'll call the creed simply the symbol. Oh. To say these words is to, at the same time, you know, have in oneself the, the faith. What is uh, diabolane? Divide? To, to, to throw, throw across, across, to okay. throw across. And the catechism will use this term about, you know, God has this plan, his economy of salvation that is uh, uh, from his hands and returning to hands. And the evil one throws himself across to God's block. plan. Uh -huh. And he blocks it. 
Okay, he's the oh. diabolic one. Okay, he's a roadblock. So uh, exbalain, which is the term that's used in the uh, uh, when Jesus does. There's another term, incidentally, when um, uh, the Jewish high priests or those who are trying. Apparently, there's a story in the Acts of the Apostles where some exorcists show up and they try to exorcise, but not in Jesus's name. The the, the New Testament use, uh, uses this word exhorzine, which means to get out from underneath an oath. There, this, there's this uh, ancient Greek god god called Horkos, and he would, if you broke an oath, he would come after you. So to be ex-horkos or ex-horkazine means to get out from under his, his oppression of you because you've broken an oath. Mm. This is the term, um, this, this, shout out to Jeremy Priest here, I only know this because oh, yeah. he's a Jeremy. former student, uh, pointed this out, that this is the term that's used for those who are doing exorcisms not in Christ's name. But when Jesus does, and so in this one story in the Acts of the Apostles, they try to, they try to do this exorcism and the demons say back to them, who are you? We know who Paul is, so we don't know who you are. What are you talking about? And so they, it doesn't work. But when Jesus does this thing, it's called exbalay or some form of that. Okay, so, so that's what an we, exorcism is. So where do we get schism from? Or the or size. Or size. That's horkazine. Oh. It's, it's horkos. It's a, it's a derivative of this term. Exhorkos. It's a version oh. of exhorkos. To okay. get out from the horkos. God who okay. will Got badger it. you if you break an oath. Okay, so that's where yeah. we get exorcism then. Yeah, Got yeah, it. yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Let's leave it at that. There are. <coughs> well, Excuse might as well me. get it out. <coughs> Dennis. Okay. <clears throat> there are. Uh, so that's what it means. It means to cast out. It means to cast out. There are two different types of exorcisms. There's called the uh, minor or simple exorcism. Mm -hmm. Have you ever had one of those? I don't think so. Yes, that you have. Be... Oh, baptism. Yes. yes. Yeah, so this uh, minor or simple that. exorcism is to protect and is to uh, uh, equip one to battle against evil, to ward off evil. So in the, in the new rite of infant baptism, before your baby goes down into the water, there's two things that happen. One, I think we talked about this in a recent podcast, there's an anointing with the oil of catechumens because you're oiling up um, the, the one about to be baptized to go to do battle. battle with the devil. This is accompanied by this minor exorcism, which is a prayer for strength, uh, for protection, and for success in the battle. So the minor exorcism appears in the rite of infant baptism it appears in the RCIA. So like the RCIA is like, take the rite of infant baptism that takes 20 minutes on a, on a Sunday, stretch that out into 15 months, it's the same type of thing. So in this period of the catechumenate, those who are catechumens uh, receive anointing with the oil of the catechumens and there's these very frequent exorcism prayers, these minor exorcist uh, prayers that would take place at the same time. There's... Um, also, this is in the right of, uh, right of acceptance, so this is how one gets to become a catechumenate, and it's also in the, the baptism of infants in the extraordinary form. So I'm a godparent to, uh, to two kids that were baptized in the extraordinary form. And there's what's called an exsulflation in Ooh. both the uh, right of acceptance, it's an optional right there, and, and in the right uh, for baptism in the extraordinary form, you know what exsulflation is? I do not. I it's like this, the sound of it, though. It's this uh, breathing into the face oh. of 
Oh, uh, you were okay. talking about this. What? Yeah, with the. Uh, we were talking about that with the with the chrism. Yeah, I with suppose, the whole, Yeah, when the bishop breathes on the oil. Yeah, I don't know if that. I don't know if the term exhalation is reserved to this sort of exorcistic, exorcistic thing, or it's any breathing. But okay. uh, but I think that's the the nature of the breathing in the face, of, and in fact, in the rite of exorcism, which we'll look at. Eventually, there's uh, the option that the exorcist would breathe into the face of the one Whoa. who's possessed. I okay. love it. Anyway, so these are minor exorcisms. Someone now, told me that our yeah. father is, in fact, a little deliverance prayer because the last line is deliver us from evil, right? And so even that would be like your normal spiritual hygiene, and then you work your way up. So it's not complicated. It's just asking God to deliver you from evil. Say more about uh, deliverance prayer. Well, deliverance, as I understand it, I don't know the precise sort of encyclopedia definition of this, but it's being freed from the power of evil in whatever way that happens. So um, I've been told that even holy water, you know, when you make the sign of the cross going into a church, that that's just a, not, it's not an exorcism, properly speaking, but there's some deliverance from the power of evil in that sense, that our Father does that. Anytime you ask God for protection, the St. Michael prayer, that there's some deliverance from the influence of evil spirits on you, and they're probably pretty weak, so they don't take a lot to get rid of. But then when you get to the upper level of real infestation of serious demons, then you work your way up to more and more uh, powerful responses. Can anybody do this? Deliverance? Sure. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can, I can say the Our Father for you. I can ask you to, uh, I can say, hey, oh, Chris, you know. But you mentioned uh, the Leo Thirteenth or the Society mm -hmm. group? Okay. Well, they train uh, exorcists, but they train other people too. But they train other people too. And I, this is uh, um, one of the things that you would learn in the class if you went to the Liturgical Institute and uh, heard about exorcisms is that, uh, at least in the early tradition, the, the, the power or the charism, really it, it, was, uh, it came about by two ways. One is someone had a charism, uh, you know, a gift from, from God who was especially, again, I'm, I'm really talking out of my uh, experiential league here, that, that had a certain gift for, for as you say, binding of spirits or delivering. Well, binding and casting out are different, different? as okay. I understand it. So binding means you render, render a demon harmless. So it's, it can no longer affect the person, but it's still there. So it's like the weed in the weeds notion. You know, if you pull out the weeds, you might pull mm -hmm. out the wheat with it. So it might be damaging to remove the demon, but it can't harm them. And then casting out means you cast out. But there's a whole other thing that goes with that because what will come in its place if it's gone? You know, that's the biblical line. If you cast one out, seven more might come in its place. So casting out and... Um, Okay. Well, <laughs> whatever it is that happens here, some people are good at it. Uh, some people seem to have uh, received this gift, and I, and so as you trace uh, some of the, insofar as it's possible, you know, where did the the, the place of exorcists in uh, the early church, and even you know, we talked recently about the ordination of an exorcist. You know, what would they do? What was their history? What were they what were they doing? Is that it seems that some of it came about via just this. this this charism of, I suppose, the Holy Spirit for the service of the church. Whereas the, um, it was in the, Jesse, you'll remember this, in the uh, uh, Fourth Council of Carth Carthage oh, in 398. Oh, yes, I was It wasn't the Third the, Council? No, 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 no you're getting that confused with, yeah, that's when it speaks about the ordination of an exorcist. And that seems to be the first uh, written account of the, this, what we would, I guess we would call the, the, the suborder, what would later be called the suborder of exorcist. And what Father Grob suggests is that people were being, they're being charlatans, you know, mm -hmm. they, you know they, they were promising all of these things, which they didn't have any power or desire to free one. So that what does the church do when there's potential abuse like that is to, is to help to codify and legislate and organize and protect 
exorcists and people who would receive them. And so the origins of these are uh, kind of two, twofold. Okay. But about um, the, uh, th this, is, this is close to the next point I want to make about the, the, the major exorcism, which is to, to free, it's not necessarily so much to free one on the front end from being, uh, being uh, attacked by the wickedness and snares of the devil, but to free one who has become uh, possessed. And major exorcism means the actual right of exorcism. Means the actual the right of exorcism. By a priest or a bishop. Uh -huh. Yeah. Now, we mentioned before when you asked Jesse, uh, there's been a number of versions. And in fact, there's uh, almost every single liturgical book from the church has now been updated and translated into the vernacular. I think the Roman martyrology is one yet to be wow, translated into wait. the vernacular, but there is one. Okay. This is what lists all the saints. Okay, but this is, so this is the next to last of the church's books to have been um, reformed after the council and then translated. Why? Probably, oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, because it's a pretty delicate balance of trying to get it to be what it needs to be. And there's a lot of sensitivity. So they've been working on it very carefully for Correct. the last 50 years? That's what I would guess. I don't think that's Dang. the right well, I have two ideas. One yeah. is obviously the right of exorcism is used way less than mm -hmm. the order of mass, right? So it's not the number one importance. But I would also wonder, maybe the whole belief in the devil sort of waned and, it, and psychology took over for a while. And so... We needed to sort of wake up to the idea that we needed this. Yeah, I think uh, I think that's too. We had uh, dinner with one of the priests uh, at the, from the Leo the Thirteenth mm -hmm. uh, one night in the refectory. Do you remember that? And, and he yes. asked. So it was you and I, and I don't know three He's or the four. Guy who started the group. He's the guy who very, started it. Yeah, very experienced. Exorcist. And then there's three or four exorcists, and he he or excuse me, three or four seminarians. And uh, what Monsignor asked everybody at the table is, you know, what do you know about uh, angels and demons? He like, asked the seminarians, what are they yeah, teaching? Yeah, what are they uh, saying? Uh, <laughs> and, you know, I, I, I don't bring that up as a, um, you know, a knock against uh, the seminary formation here or anything like that. But it's, uh, I think this was especially the case. This is what is suggested by um, you know, people who study this is that it, uh, there was almost no time devoted towards that. And uh, people who give presentations on this to, you know, bodies of uh, either clergy or lay faithful, you know, uh, just even now, I mean, what, what is the place uh, of the devil and demons or angels in your spiritual life? And, you know, I don't know that they have the credence, or we, rather we have the credence in them that maybe we, we once did. So, yeah, that there was a lot of uh, psychologizing of problems. And probably that was a reaction to people who actually had psychological problems being told they were infested by the devil and so everything was the devil then the reaction was nothing's the devil right it's all mm -hmm. medical science and now we're kind of in this place where you have to distinguish between psychological problems and spiritual yeah and that that's uh, what what you'll see and this is what father grob pointed out as you look through the the legislation over the years about the the nature of the exorcist he gives um they need to be pious they need to be prudent they need to live a, a holy life but later on more and more what's required of them is they need to be well formed well educated because the exorcist when someone um approach them saying that, you know, I think I'm possessed or my child's possessed or whatever it is, he has to be able in a, in a very clear and intelligent way to sort out what is uh, psychological illness and what is uh, demonic possession. So, Sometimes it's easy. We had a student here who was a priest and he was called to a house 
And somebody said, oh, my mother is possessed by the devil. And he was like, oh, okay, whatever. And he went there and he actually saw her fly off the ground up and went upside down and was hanging from the ceiling <laughs> like a fly, you know? And he said, oh, I better call the exorcist. In that case, you see these violations of the natural laws of gravity or if they speak language or they have extraordinary strength. Those are pretty obvious ones. But if someone is just like talking to themselves and hears voices, then it's very hard to know, is this like schizophrenia or is this some um, demonic thing? Yeah. Yeah, and that's that's an a point that uh, a point that I hear the exorcists make uh, a lot is that, you know it, the devil isn't behind every rock and tree, you know, waiting to possess you, mm-hmm. uh, but he's he's a real thing, he's a real thing that we would need to be uh, aware of. Anyway, I, are we running out of time on this? Yeah, one? I think let's do a part two. This? Yeah, I, let's do a part two because you want to dive into the actual right a little bit. Well, I think it's uh, if it's not a right that's uh, readily available, I think we can give at least a structural outline of the sure. right and uh, see what Absolutely. it looks like. Okay, well, so next week we will talk a little bit more about the actual right. And uh, sorry, you'll have to wait till next week. But for now, I think we should answer a liturgy question. What do you guys think? Okay. In All English right. or Latin? Which one's more The vernacular. The okay, vernacular. definitely vernacular. It won't make sense yeah. either way. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> So you guys know that we love the Liturgical Institute and we love everything that we do here, but you know who else loves the Liturgical Institute? Yeah, Bishop Robert Barron. And guess what he has to say about it? Well, I've known the Liturgical Institute from the very beginning. I was at Mundelein on the faculty in 2000 when it started. I knew Monsignor Mannion very well, who was the founder. Uh, Dr. McNamara, who was with him from the beginning, I've known. We've become good friends. I've spoken many times there. I've known all the faculty members. I've known many of the students. So I, I know from the ground up what the, um, the LI does. And they introduce people into the beauty of the church's intellectual tradition and liturgical tradition. And um, I don't know in the country a better place to go to get immersed precisely in that aesthetic dimension and the intellectual than the LI. So, you know, I'm a big fan. Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? All right. This week, we have a question from Emily. Emily, Emily, Emily. Uh, does she say where she's from? Um, mm, oh, don't say. It's private. No, she doesn't say where she's okay. from. Okay. Emily from Oshkosh, Oshkosh Wisconsin, or Cucamonga, California. I thought she was from Eau Claire. Oh, Claire. I know. All right. Emily says, hello. She does not. That's how, that's how she said. Are there a lot of O's there? Well, she was like, hello. There's an exclamation. So I'm just like, hello. Is it like all that. caps? Well, okay. What's hey. the question? <laughs> Emily says, my question is on liturgical music. Mm-hmm. Is it true that there is a document or some kind of instruction against singing hymns that have lyrics in which God is speaking to us in the first person. I was told this years ago around the time the new translation was introduced a couple of examples of hymns in this style are Dan Schutte's Here I Am Lord and Suzanne Tulin's I Am the Bread of Life. It might have been that the pastor of that parish was using a a time of transition to enact their preference but I had been under the impression that there was more official document than that. Hmm. I don't know of an official document on that. It could be mentioned somewhere in Sing to the Lord, maybe. I haven't studied every word of that. Agreed. So, I, I've, never, I've, heard, I've heard what she's describing. I've heard that many times. I don't think I've ever seen it. Like, uh, you, you should never though. be speaking in the voice of God. Like, I am God, I did this, in a song. 
That's what she's getting at, right? Yep, I've okay. heard that before too, but I've never, like Dennis, I've never seen it in a document. Right, so if anybody knows of an actual documentation on that, please send it to Liturgy Guys. Or at tweet us at liturgyguys. Liturgy or whatever. All right, yeah. However. I think the theological principle, however, is sound that the God the Father is the receiver of our worship, right? And typically we sing to God the Father. We don't sing as God the Father. So I like to think, could the angels, would the angels and saints be singing around the throne of God, looking at his face, saying, I, the Lord, am sea and sky, I can hear my people cry. No, probably not. He would say to them, <laughs> I, the Lord, of sea and sky, I can hear my people cry. And they would say, we praise you for that. So you do hear in older hymns quotes, so to say, take up your cross, the Savior set, right? So it, they quote. Well, but that's different. If you're quoting somebody. Well, right. You quote yeah. the words of Christ, but then it tells you kind of in the third person that he said it rather than taking mm -hmm. the words of God, the Father, as your own or the words of Christ as your own. You know, is this the biggest, you know, sin in the world? No. But I think properly speaking, if you want to be precise, you sing to God, you don't sing as God. On the other hand. Uh-oh. Uh, it does say somewhere in a document. <laughs> what don't don't be too vague. Why don't we get into the nitty gritty? That uh, hymns are to be based on the sacred scriptures, mm -hmm. and so you could you could say that. Well, that is based on what we'd say in the sacred scripture. I am the bread of life. Uh, I am the good shepherd. Whatever it is. So you're you're actually there. These hymns are based on the texts of the sacred scriptures that say I am this or that, and also. You know, I thought I had a. I thought this may be more of a slam dunk, Dennis, until you clarified this a minute ago. Like, think of some of the communion antiphons, proper antiphons in the Mass. I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. Right, where well, we say that there. But as you, I didn't think about this till you says mentioned the it. Lord. Says the Lord. Right. It always. It, it right. It always sort of says. Uh, oh, so uh, in the in the antiphons and the propers, we don't ever speak in the voice of God. No, we do. Person. We do. But they always. They always. But that's I a don't quote. know all of them. That's a quote. They, but they always say, yeah, says the Lord. And so even though you would say, I'm the living bread that has come down from heaven, so you're speaking that way, but then as Dennis suggests, it always says, says the Lord. So I don't know. I, I, this, well, I just uh, looked up, you know, Father McNamara answers a lot of these questions on, on, your uncle? on Zenit. He has no relation. Is he your father? He's fine name, but he is not my father <laughs> or my uncle. And he says he knows of no specific legislation on the matter. Um, and then says, in fact, we didn't read this first, but he brings up the says the Lord thing, right? That uh -huh. you, you speak the words of God as you're telling people, but that it's the Lord's words. You, you would never really claim God's words as your own. I think he just has a danger potentially of making you think you're God, right? Is it likely to turn anybody into not knowing they're human anymore? Probably not. But, you know, erring on the safe side and the strict interpretation, I would say it's probably not a good idea in, if you don't have those nice phrases like the Savior said or says the Lord. All right, Emily, I hope that answers your question. Goodbye, goodbye. Emily. Goodbye. goodbye. Yeah, we're equally as excited to say goodbye to you as you were to say hello to us. We mean that in the best way. Oh, of course. You say if you goodbye. want to ask us. <laughs> That's a Beatles song. Your today. age is showing, Chris. <laughs> If you want to answer... You know who that is, yeah, though. I know. If I know. you want to ask. Oh, yeah. If you want to ask a question, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com or tweet us. At liturgyguys. At liturgyguys. Uh, Chris, do you have a Twitter account? No. That's what I thought. All right. Mine is D-Mac-A-D. Wait, do you do have a mm -hmm. Twitter account? D-M-A-C-A-D-Mac-A-D. D-M-A-C-A-D-E. Do you follow the liturgy guys? Not yet. You no. should. <laughs> Chris always says D Macadie, Macadie, Macadie. Do you follow the Liturgical Institute? No. Come on. Man. I think I only follow Three Dogs at Earth. 
All right, we are some at, we are definitely out of time. Other <laughs> podcasts. All right, well, anyway, thank you and God bless. The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition. Now that's a podcast.